0: Hey, Democracy and danger listeners, as you probably know, we're in the midst this month and next of dropping some new shows on hotspots around the world, where government by the people is under a lot of stress. And as we gear up for the rest of that series, we thought it might be a good time to drop a related episode back in your feed. It's all about democratic institutions in Latin America, and Mexico in particular. If you've been following the news, you know that last week, President Biden met with the leaders of Mexico and Canada at the White House, just as a new caravan of more than 3,000 migrants from Haiti and Central America set off toward the U.S.-Mexico border. At the summit, Biden struck a more cooperative tone than his predecessor on immigration, climate, COVID, and more— But it remains to be seen whether the new rhetoric of, quote, planting opportunities that came out of the summit will meet the challenges we discussed with Loyola Chicago historian Hema Clopes Santa Maria. As you'll hear in this interview I did with Will back in the spring, U.S. investment in Latin America is one thing. Intervention is quite another. Let's get to the show. Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Robert Armengol, sitting in this week for Siva Vadianathan, And
1: from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger.
0: Well, Will, thanks for having me on today. It's a real delight to be with you today as the co-host. Usually I'm in the producer's chair just nagging you and Siva. Hey, Robert, it's great to have you on, especially given today's topic,
1: which I know is close to your own interests.
0: That's right. You know, we're turning to Latin America this time and we're going to try to make sense of all the turmoil that the region has long faced. We'll be talking about problems that drive so many, you know, like my own family, to immigrate to the United States. So this year, already, we've seen a huge surge in miners desperately crossing the southern border all by themselves. It's a real headache for President Biden. Detention centers are filling up and he's trying at the same time to make good on this pledge, you know, to take a more humane approach to immigration than his predecessor.
1: So the president's immigration plan calls for four billion dollars to address the underlying reasons that people migrate north to the United States in the first place. And and now there's this perception, perhaps, that Biden is going to be more lenient on unauthorized immigration. And that actually led his team to announce that the border is not open.
0: And aside from those socioeconomic factors, we just can't discount the reality that in Central and South America and many parts of Mexico, people are scared and vulnerable. There's a lot of violence, whether it's political violence at the hands of oppressive states or extrajudicial violence in areas where state institutions seem to have broken down. The murder rate in Mexico alone, Will, has nearly tripled over the last 15 years. It's amazing. Well, to help us unravel some of
1: these complex issues, we've invited a historian and sociologist of Latin America and Mexico, in particular, onto the show today. Hema Clope Santa Maria is with us from Loyola University in Chicago. She's the author of the recent book *In the Vortex of Violence: Lynching, Extralegal Justice, and the State in Post-Revolutionary Mexico*. Hema, welcome to *Democracy in Danger*.
2: Thank you, Will, and thank you, Robert. Thank you for having me.
1: So in your research and writing, let me just kind of set out a big question. You know, you remind us that Mexico is a thriving player in many respects in the global economy. And it's a fully functioning electoral democracy. At least since the late 80s, there's been genuine multi-party governance. But at the same time, you're a scholar of vigilante justice and mob violence, which has a long history. And there is still a great deal of it in Mexico today. So how can we square this regrettable persistence of violence, uh, you know, the power of drug cartels and so on, with this more positive story that Mexico has to tell of of a democracy moving forward?
2: Yeah, this this is a very important question, Will, and one that I believe really pushes us to think about the quality of democracy in Mexico and Latin America at large. Uh, I mean, like you said, like in many regards, Mexico is doing very well. I mean, economically speaking, it has been doing well since at least the 1980s, 1990s. It has alternation of power, elections function very well, Um, like electoral democracy works well in Mexico. And I would say in macroeconomic terms, the country is doing well, too. And also, let me just add another dimension of democracy that I think is important. Mexico has a very vibrant civil society, and we see that in the feminist movement no, that has made it to the headlines uh, recently, that is really holding accountable politicians and public officials and asking for more transparency. On the other hand, there is this other darker side of contemporary Mexico, which has to do with rampant levels of drug-related violence, but not only. There are also kidnappings, extortions, like these other more like disorganized forms of violence that affect people and citizens in their everyday lives. And there is also vigilante justice, you know, that includes lynching, mob violence, the history that I have studied. And I think to make sense of this, we need to understand the contradictions of democracy in Mexico that are not exclusive to Mexico, but also that are characterized in Latin America at large. And these have to do with uh, inequality, economic inequality, so economic development that looks good at the macro level, but that it hasn't translated into very economic distribution, and that has pushed people to participate in the informal economy and in illicit markets. This is not new. I mean, this has been happening uh, for quite a while. Now, on the other hand, there is also the question of the lack of reforms that were and continue to be much needed in terms of the justice and security apparatus in Mexico. 93% of crimes go unpunished in Mexico today. So impunity runs high, and that speaks to the fact that Several administrations from the left, from the right, from the center, they have postponed much needed reforms to the justice and security apparatus. So the the police needs to be reformed, needs to be professionalized, modernized so that people can trust them more. This hasn't happened. Uh, And this hasn't happened in great part because the war on drugs has prioritized the security approaches that are militarized, that are like focused on short-term policies, Um, People do not trust authorities. The police is not perceived as a legitimate actor by citizens, and crime has increased over the last decades. So here is the story of Mexico, and and I believe it's a story common to other Latin American democracies, these very deep contradictions. Well,
0: Hema, I wonder if you could help us understand the role of the police in facilitating or enabling in some way this disorganized violence you're talking about you open your book with a story of two brothers who were lynched in a town in the state of Puebla about five years ago and it's a really chilling account of mob violence it made international headlines and it looked by all accounts that the police basically stepped aside and allowed this sort of vigilante justice to take place I'm wondering if you could narrate that for us. And, you know, is this sort of thing common? It sounds like it is. What does it say about the state of public institutions in Mexico?
2: So, yeah, I I decided to open the book with this story. Uh, In addition to its visibility and the news coverage that it received, the lynching of these two brothers, uh, José Abraham and Rey David Copado Molina, in Jalpan, Puebla in the year 2015 really showed some of the main elements that I wanted to underline. Uh, namely, that contrary to what some social scientists have claimed in regards to this phenomenon, lynching is not really an expression of a state absence, uh, or at least that doesn't tell the whole story. And it's not either an expression of state failure necessarily. Rather, what we see as in the case of the lynching of these two brothers is that many times the police is present However, uh, people do not trust the capacity of the police to deliver the type of justice that they deem necessary to punish criminal conduct. So in this case, for instance, the brothers had been accused of attempting to kidnap a little girl. The police had detained the two brothers. They were being interrogated in the municipal offices. The brothers had denied the crime. They said that they were rather posters, that they were doing a survey on tortilla consumption in this town. The police was able to communicate uh, with their boss and to confirm the identity of these two brothers. The little girl um, that was supposed to be the victim uh, of this attempt of kidnapping actually declared that she had never seen the brothers. And despite of this, the, the rumor had already taken over the situation and people were distrustful of the version of reality that the police was saying. So these two brothers were from out of town, they were young, I mean, they look strange. And so that ignited people's anger. Now, like you mentioned, uh, the police reaction to this and other lynchings is ambivalent. Uh, So indeed, in many cases, the police is simply outnumbered by the mob. But in many other cases, police officers simply decide not to intervene Um, believing that the so-called criminals deserve this punishment or are even more actively complicit in the organization of these extrajudicial killings. Now, this will come as no surprise to those uh, that are familiarized with the history of lynching in the United States. But for people that work on lynchings in contemporary Latin America, this comes as a surprise. One last thing I I would say about this case is it allowed me also to point at the fact that you know, people is not just trying uh, to correct the state's incapacity to provide justice, but they also want to deliver a particularly cruel, corporeal, collective form of justice. So in the case of these two brothers, they were attacked with knives. They were injured very badly. They were beaten to death and they were born alive. So I think this excess of violence tells you that these are highly communicative acts. And that is not only about correcting the impunity that exists, although that is central to this story, but it's also about inflicting harm to these victims in order to send a message that this conduct won't be tolerated.
1: Well, let me see if I can shift this from the ground to the sort of executive level. And I want to ask you a question about um, the current political environment in Mexico. We've talked a lot about right-wing populists and nativists on this show, people who who use racial grievances and they develop this intense loyalty uh, of their voters. But in Mexico, there is a populist president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, but his roots are on the left. And he's got significant support. He, he's been channeling funds to the poor, uh, to dealing with various social crises of one kind or another. But critics are saying that López Obrador is weakening institutions that, you know, have safeguarded rights, human rights, clean elections, transparency. Maybe he's using funds to build up a loyal party base. What's your take? Uh, has this Mexican populist been good for democracy?
2: That's that's a very good question. Um, people had great expectations about López Obrador or AMLO, as it's known popularly in, in Mexico. People had great expectations about what AMLO could bring about. Uh, in terms of security, for instance, that are the issues that I follow more closely. He had pledged to leave behind the militarization of the country, the war on drugs. He had promised that he would abandon this repressive short-term measures uh, towards drug trafficking and and other crimes he he promised to deliver a more integral approach that was going to tackle the institutional and social roots of violence we haven't seen any of that, or, or rarely any of that. What we have seen is the continuation of the government utilizing the military in public security functions, the recent release of uh, Salvador Sinfuegos, the former defense minister, and the lack of any investigation, uh, despite the fact that he was being investigated in the United States, that has really you know, left a feeling of concern uh, amongst many people in Mexico.
0: Him, I'm wondering if we could zoom out from Mexico a little bit and talk about Latin America at large. You know, I'm an anthropologist. My own research focuses on Cuba and Cuba is not known for its democratic institutions by any stretch. On the other hand, it's also not known for extra legal violence or crime in general. It's a pretty safe place. And, you know, that's confounding to a lot of people. And I certainly don't want to oversimplify this and suggest that somehow authoritarian regimes are better at managing social chaos, uh, social violence. Uh, The police certainly have a history of oppression in Cuba. But, you know, what are the parallels we should be looking to in the rest of Latin America? And how can we have it all? I mean, how can we have a vibrant democracy and a safer, more secure Societies uh, that provide well-being for their citizens. What's the outlook for for this region?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, as I was saying, like some of the characteristics that I describe for Mexico are also applicable to Latin America. I mean, these countries, um, the the region in general. These transitions to democracy happened in parallel to the more active participation of these countries in the globalized market-oriented economy. And that brought about economic tensions, economic contradictions within these countries that also generated increasing levels of crime. I mean, we know for a fact that robberies have been on the rise since the 1990s, which coincides with the decades in which these countries transitioned to democracy. Um, there's also the need to push for institutional reforms that didn't happen. I mean, this is particularly true for Central America, Mexico, but you also see this in countries like Brazil, where the same police that was operated under undemocratic conditions has continued to operate now under the umbrella of democracy. So we transition from this kind of like rhetoric of anti-communism and the need to fight these internal enemies Now to a rhetoric about the enemy is the criminal, is the drug trafficker, is the gang member in the Northern Triangle of Central America, and these police, they do not act with accountability, with transparency, they abuse their force, they participate in extrajudicial killings. So again, these are the legacies of the past that the transition to democracy did not solve. Now, how do we alleviate this? Um, a couple of things that I can mention, and this comes also from my experience uh, having worked uh, with the UNDP, with the United Nations Development Program. The experiences that work at the local level are those where citizens are more able to trust police. And, and these work with uh, community forms of policing, with a police that is perceived as being closer to citizens, with models of citizen security that are really centered on human security, that are integral, I mean, that are providing a more wholesome understanding of what is driving crime and violence, meaning that they tackle like the institutional roots, the social roots. So change is possible. The problem is that it happens slowly. And in democracies with these electoral cycles, People want to see change happen quickly and and that's the challenge of democracies in Latin America and elsewhere
1: Emma, let me bring the the United States into this conversation a little bit. It's kind of a sort of bitterly ironic situation in that the United States should not really be telling any any other country how to reform its police since we're in the midst of of course of a of a very difficult national conversation about police brutality. Uh, racial violence um, and a national protest movement—the the horrors of the era of lynching have come back uh, to to haunt us in the in the 21st century. But nonetheless, a lot of our listeners are located in the United States, and they may well be wondering—you know—what should the United States be doing about some of these problems in its southern neighbor? Should are there ways in which the United States can contribute to the kind of reforms you're talking about, whether it's in policing or or in development or in you know, inequality or is the United States really part of the problem? Has it tended to exacerbate many of these sort of structural, social, economic crises that continue to dog Mexico and to exact such a high price? Ideally, what would you like to tell uh, the Biden administration to be thinking about as they try to assist and play a positive role in improving human security in Mexico?
2: I think um, the United States has undoubtedly been part uh, of the problem, but because of that, it can also be part of the solution. So so let me begin by saying that these countries, I mean, the, the history of these countries in terms of how they react to security threats is intimately linked to the, to the United States. You know? I mean, so we had uh, during the long Cold War in Latin America the impetus to to police and criminalize political dissent, particularly from the left and the so-called threat of communism, that impetus really follow also from the United States asking the governments in these countries to police and to criminalize these groups. Now, in contemporary Latin America, the U.S. has also been uh, central in terms of the approach that Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, the Central American countries and others have had towards the drug problem on the one hand, again promoting this idea that drugs must be criminalized that the best way to tackle this problem is to eradicate cultivation production trafficking and consumption no i mean declaring an all out war eh, against drugs and on the other eh, through us assistance i mean so the united states i mean since plan colombia and later on with mexico the merida initiative it has supported this kind of short term militarized approaches uh, to deal with security threats. Now, these countries, of course, have also agency uh, in this story. And and I think it's important to acknowledge that, for instance, in the case of the Merida Initiative, the Merida Initiative was promoted initially by the Mexican President Felipe Calderón. He was the one that approached the United States and said, we want resources to fight drug trafficking organizations and he was the one also that decided that this should be done through a militarized repressive approach. So these countries have agency. I mean, and there is a fascinating new historiography also that has demonstrated how the war on drugs intersected with the dirty wars in many of these countries. So it this is not a top-down story where you know the, the US says this has to be done and Latin America just follows. No, I mean these governments have their own agency and their own responsibility in the makings of this. Crisis,
0: Hema. You do such a good job of reminding us of the really sordid history of American intervention in Latin America, going back really two centuries. I think of the CIA intervention in the Chile and um, the rise of Pinochet, and in Colombia with the war on drugs, as you mentioned, and so on. I mean, the the list is really endless. And yet, ordinary Americans aren't particularly familiar with that history. We don't think about it a lot. Mostly we think about Latin America through the lens of of immigration. And I want to come back to that for a second, because I've always been frustrated by the conversation on immigration in this country. It seems to always come back to the question of, should we allow more people? Should we welcome more people? Or should we um, keep immigration down? And what you're telling us suggests that maybe we're asking the wrong question. We mentioned the $4 billion that Biden is proposing we put toward the root causes of immigration. Is that enough? I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is we need more of that kind of thinking. And and if so, you know, is the administration undershooting what really needs to be done?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is an area where I really believe there is very strong chances of collaboration and aligning uh, the interests between Mexico and the United States and Central America, working towards a more, again, integral understanding of what is driving migration. I mean, we know that uh, people are abandoning their homes after making very difficult choices. Um, These are not you know, things that people do lightly, abandoning their homes, abandoning their families. And I think it's important to to remind ourselves of that. And it has to do with the economic uh, conditions that they face, I mean, the lack of economic opportunities, uh, the deep problems of poverty and inequality that Central American countries face. It has also to do with insecurity, of course. I mean, the very real fear of being recruited by gang members uh, or of young women, like being also uh recruited or exploited sexually by these gangs and also environmental factors, no? like uh, environmental disasters that affect these countries. So there are several reasons why uh, people are abandoning their homes. And, and yes, I believe that the Biden administration, like by promising these resources, is moving in the right direction. Now, will it be enough? Uh, the question is, how sustainable and how much political capital will be invested on this. I mean, there have been very good things done uh, through CARSI, which was this uh, assistance program also promoted by the United States. Uh, The United States has also promoted some prevention programs in the Northern Triangle that have actually yielded very positive results. So in contrast to the zero tolerance measures against gang members, which have only led to raising incarceration rates, more violence, uh, gang members becoming more and more vicious. These preventive approaches have actually worked in Central America. I mean, there are several studies that show that. So I think it's less perhaps about the amount of money per se and more about how, with how much political will will these efforts be promoted? The governments of Honduras, El Salvador and Honduras have repeatedly failed to really understand that zero tolerance measures simply have not worked. I mean, that mando dura policies are a failure. I mean, that they have only increased violence, they have only increased impunity. So this is the chance, No, I mean, take Biden's approach that seems to be more willing to work together towards a more citizen-based, citizen-focused security agenda.
1: Well, Hema, Clope, Santa Maria, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger.
2: Thank you, Will, and thank you, Robert. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you.
0: That was Gema Clópez-Santamaría, a sociologist and assistant professor of Latin American history at Loyola University, Chicago. She's the author of In the Vortex of Violence, Lynching, Extralegal Justice, and the State in Post-Revolutionary Mexico. And she's an editor of the recent volume, Violence and Crime in Latin America. Democracy in Danger
1: is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. hi, I'm Jane Frankel, an intern on Democracy in Danger. This week we wanted to let you know about one of our most important partners this year, the podcast Democracy Works from Penn State. Since 2018, Democracy Works has been shining a light on self-government with powerful conversations on big picture topics like neoliberalism, gerrymandering, and ranked choice voting. Past guests on the show include Atlantic staff writer Ann Applebaum, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, and jazz great Wynton Marsalis. Give Democracy Works a listen and help support our network. Search Democracy Works in your podcast player and catch up on more than 150 episodes. New shows drop every Monday. Robert, that was a moving conversation, powerful. Um, Hema reminds us uh, that when it comes to the U.S.-Mexico border, we're all involved. What is happening there, what has been happening there for decades, for generations, in some way is an indictment of the authorities on both sides of the border. But it's also a reminder of the human costs of suffering, the agony that unfolds there day after day after day. And I I feel that I personally, and I think many Americans... Think of the problem of the border as a policy issue, one that can be resolved by tweaking our immigration policy or maybe having a, a, a more uh, humane border patrol. No doubt those things are necessary, but I think there's kind of a conceptual issue here. We need to remember that there is a an issue of profound human suffering that is often involved, and it may be fear and violence and vigilante violence of the kind that Hema spoke about today, that's pushing people uh, to take these risks and to set out on the road for an uncertain future. But Robert, I'm reminded that your family too faced such uh, difficult decisions uh, in, the, in the late 50s and early 60s as the Cuban Revolution uh, occurred and then was for a time, very violent, both before and after. Is the migration story in your family very much in the forefront of the sort of you know folk knowledge in your household? Is this something you all talked about? How did it shape the way your family talked about its own
0: history? Right, yeah, you know, so, Cubans in my grandparents' and parents' generation regarded themselves and and many still regard themselves as exiles, you know, which is a politically loaded term because they imagine their immigration story to have been one of uh, escaping communism, which, you know, fits very well into the sort of American ideology of um, helping certain people and not others. Cuba was a very violent place. Uh, There was a lot of fear after what had been a very popular revolution uh, came to power. Because all of a sudden, you know, there were summary executions and a lot of score settling that uh, seemed to depart from the stated goals of the revolutionary project for a lot of middle class Cubans and professionals. And, you know, my grandparents made a tough decision. My grandmother had an amazing story about waiting in a giant line and um, kind of working her way into the U.S. embassy to get visas for herself, her husband, her own parents and her children. And, you know, Cubans received and still receive a very favorable treatment in terms of their immigration status, which only in my adult life have I come to see as deeply problematic. And in comparison to other people from Latin America, that treatment has been demonstrably privileged. I mean, migration from Cuba today looks a lot more like it does from the rest of Latin America as far as the reasons for it go. It generally has to do with economic deprivation and uh, the hope of making a better life, uh, not a, so much about escaping an oppressive regime. And as I mentioned earlier, Cuba's not by any stretch as violent as other places in the region. You know, I one of
1: the things that Hemo really was able to illuminate for us is that sometimes violence in the streets, an ugly, brutal gang murder, a killing, the kind of thing that can really unsettle a community, does in fact have the collusion, whether active or passive, of the authorities themselves. And that's a very disturbing notion for those who are interested in functioning democracies. I mean, you're not supposed to have random killings by self-appointed vigilantes in the streets of your towns and your villages. At the same time, this is not unheard of in the United States. And it's one of those moments where we can learn something by looking at ourselves through the lens of other countries and other cultures. There's a long history of officials in the United States actively or passively participating in vigilante violence, the entire history of lynching is all about the way in which officials looked the other way or in some cases aided and abetted vigilante violence all across the South in the late 19th century right up through the middle of the 20th century. So although the story that Hema tells is distinct to Mexico and to Latin America and its evolution, there's a lot we can learn about the problems that American democracy has faced in dealing with and in confronting and in fact inflicting violence itself.
0: Right. And as we've talked about on the show so much, that history carries right through to the present and the summary execution of so many black men and women by law enforcement officers. Plus, let's not forget the problems faced in Latin America are also problems of American democracy and U.S. foreign policy going back two centuries. I was reminded in Her commentary on that issue of one of my own heroes, the Cuban poet and independence fighter, José Martí, in the late 19th century, who wrote a famous essay, Our America, Nuestra América, in which he made precisely this argument. It's been in the ether for a long time. He was not anti-American. He lived in the U.S. while helping support the independence movement in Cuba. The essay was published for the first time in New York City in 1891, he had strong ties to this country, but was well aware of the damage that had already been done and could possibly continue to uh, take place if Americans did not sort of recognize their equal partnership with these new democratic neighbors to the South. And sadly, he was prescient. The United States was not a good neighbor to Cuba or anywhere else in Latin America, for the most part, for the whole 20th century to come.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thinks of the the way in which the damage the United States did during the Cold War in Latin America is well known and is epic, but it it remains shocking, especially to students coming to it Uh, maybe for the first time in in a college class on the Cold War in Latin America. The United States was extraordinarily aggressive, bellicose. It sided with military dictatorships, overthrew governments, um, willingly stood aside as U.S. armed militias and armies overthrew democratically elected regimes. And the consequence in many places was endemic civil war and indeed emigration. So, so much of the legacy of America's policy in the Cold War, and in the war on drugs and, and other big policy initiatives has been to create instability in Central America. So we are all authors of the crisis at the southern border.
0: Yeah, it's sad to think after a century and change that José Martí's worst predictions about the hemisphere have come to pass. He never saw Cuba free. He never got to participate in the building of that new nation or in confronting imperialism. He died famously on the battlefield with his face to the sun. And it's, I think, left to us to pick up the pieces of that and, and revisit that argument and, and think very carefully about it.
1: Well, that's all for this rebroadcast of Democracy in Danger. Next week, we're going to dig a bit deeper on Cuba, actually, with help from another accomplished historian.
2: The Americans celebrated a peace treaty with Spain and didn't even let the Cubans in the room to negotiate it. They celebrated the defeat of Spain and raised the American flag, but they didn't even let the Cuban troops into the cities to celebrate.
0: We'd love to hear from you in the meantime. Tell us about your own experiences in Latin America and what you learned from them. You can tag us on Twitter at DND Podcast, that's D I N D Podcast, or visit our website, dindanger.org, and post a comment on any of our show pages. Hey, we've hit
1: 100,000 listens with your support. Thank you so much. Please leave a review on Apple
0: Podcasts or wherever you stream the show. Democracy in Danger is produced by me, Robert Armengol, with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Sidney Holliman edits the show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from
1: the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective, the podcast network of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock, and we'll see you soon.